Welcome to Sunday Sermons from the Williamsburg Community Chapel, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. Let's grab our Bibles. We're going to be in two places, Acts chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 21. And I'll read the first three verses from Revelation 21 now for us as we prepare to hear from Rich Sylvester as he closes out our sermon series titled Restored Community. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Last September, nearly a year ago now, we started a series called Restoration, and we've spent the year considering this question. The question we began with back in September was, how can God move us from disruption to restoration? How can God move us from disruption to restoration? We started with the prophets. We looked at Ezekiel and Isaiah a future vision of the restoration of Jerusalem. Then we opened books like Ezra and Nehemiah, and we watched as God restored his people. During Advent, we opened the Gospel of Matthew. We looked how God was restoring the kingdom of heaven as the inaugural birth of our King Jesus Christ. And then, in the wintertime, we looked at restored relationships in the Lenten season, We watched as Jesus interacted with individuals, bringing restoration, wholeness, healing, and life. And lastly, we ended in Romans as we've considered the restored community, what it looks like to interact with one another and with the world around us that reflects our restored nature in Jesus Christ. And so today, we come to the conclusion of a year-long series And we end very similarly to the way we began, with a future vision, a vision of a future restoration, something that is yet to come, but not just merely the restoration of a city, but a restoration of the new heavens, the new earth, all people. And so we turn to the book of Revelation And as we do so, I'd like us to keep one phrase in mind, and that is that future restoration transforms present reality. That future restoration transforms our present reality. See, we can open the book of Revelation, and there's lots of commentaries and books and Bible studies written about Revelation, trying to figure out all the different symbols and metaphors and things that are happening. But for this morning, I'd just like to fly a little higher and see that the book of Revelation was written for a specific people in a specific time. The book of Revelation was written by John, the same disciple that wrote the Gospel of John and the letters, the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, we, we have in the New Testament. But here, later in his life, somewhere later into the first century, God gave John a vision, a vision of future restoration 
And John wrote it down. And what John didn't know at the time, and what the early church in Rome didn't know at the time, is that they would need this vision of the future restoration. Because this vision, this future restoration, would help transform their present reality. Because what was about to happen is that the early church was to undergo incredible amounts of persecution. They were about to see a level of persecution that the church had not and really hasn't seen since. Soon after this letter was written, soon after John wrote down this vision and scattered it to the churches in the Roman Empire, a new emperor took charge, Emperor Domitian, and he liked to persecute Christians. He would gather them and and put them in coliseums, crowds cheering, and as the Christians gathered in the middle of this coliseum, he would release lions that would tear the Christians apart limb by limb. Sometimes he would take Christians and impale them on stakes in a way that wouldn't kill them instantly. He would cover them in pitch and light them on fire and set them along roadsides, human torches to light the highways in Rome. It's the persecution that that early church faced was incredibly horrible. Yet, this vision that God gave John of the future restoration would transform their present reality. We read in the history books, both from Christian writers and Roman writers alike, that as these Christians were being persecuted, as they were being murdered and tortured, they sung hymns of praise. They gathered and prayed. They offered words of forgiveness to the very men that were torturing and killing them. Can you imagine being in a coliseum, the lions released, and the Christians sang hymns of praise? Tertullian, one of our early church fathers, writes that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. You see, what happened is that these early Christians, their present reality was so transformed by this vision of the future restoration that as they sang hymns, as they prayed together, as the lions tore them apart, the world watched And as they cheered in the Colosseum, they began to say, I want what the Christians have. How do they face death with with such grace and peace? How do they do this? How do they offer words of forgiveness to the very people that are torturing them? We find in the history books that the Christian church grew in leaps and bounds That even though the emperor's attempt was to wipe out the Christians, their their faithfulness in the midst of this persecution propelled the early church. That future restoration, that vision of what was to come transformed their present reality. And this morning I want to consider that that future restoration 
can transform our present reality as well. I'd like to read again the first four verses in Revelation chapter 21. May we listen to it as those early church Christians did. May we consider this picture of the future restoration. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The future restoration transforms our present reality. As we consider the picture of this future restoration, uh, we could make lots of observations about those four verses that I read. But this morning, I just want to make two. The first is a detail that we found in the first verse that I read. Did you catch it? John writes that the sea was no more. The sea was no more. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of like the sea. I like the ocean. I like the beach. I bet if I walked the parking lot right now, I could count over 100 OBX stickers on the backs of your car. We like going to the beach. We like going to the ocean. Why is it that in John's vision of the future restoration, there is no sea? Well, to understand this This idea, we have to go back a little bit in history. We have to understand the mind of the ancient Near Eastern text, of the Old Testament people, of even the New Testament readers. You see, for them, the sea was a hostile force. The sea represented chaos and death and calamity. The sea was this untamable force that worked against what God was trying to do in the world The sea was bad news. One of my roles at the chapel is to meet with children and students that are interested in baptism. I love helping kids understand what is going on in baptism. And one of the questions I often ask kids and students, I say, what is always present at baptism? And kids, they think about it and then they say, water. And I say, yes, water. It's really hard to get baptized without water. Even if you get sprinkled or dunked, whether you're in a a tank or a tub or in the river, you gotta have water to be baptized. And as we talk about this, I ask a question of kids. I say, "What, what is the symbolism of water? Why did Jesus say we were baptized with water? Well, as we do that, I often ask kids, I say, Tell me, what are some of the Bible stories that you know that have lots of water in it? And they start thinking and their hands go up and they say, Noah's Ark, Noah's Ark has lots of water. 
right? That, that everybody was there and, and God sent a judgment and the seas rose up and the rain fell and water wiped out everybody except those that were on the ark. That water in that story represented death. And I say, what other stories have lots of water in it in the Bible? And the kids think and their hands go up and they say, what about Moses in the Red Sea? Say, yes, of course. There was Moses and the Israelites camped on the edge of the Red Sea. The Egyptian army was coming from one direction and the sea was in the other. They were surrounded by death. If they went towards the army, they would be killed. If they walked into the sea, they would die. Yet Jesus made a way and they walked through on dry land. But that sea represented death. The kids keep thinking more of other stories. They say, what about when the disciples were in the boat with Jesus? Yes, on the Sea of Galilee, the storm rose up and the waves were crashing in on the boat. And these fishermen that had seen storms before got so scared that they screamed out, Jesus, we're going to die. The sea represented death. But Jesus stood up and said, peace, be still. And in baptism, when we baptize these kids and students, they know that this water, one of the symbols is a, a symbol of death, that they're identifying themselves with Jesus Christ in his life, his death, if I held them under, they, they would die, and their resurrection. And we talk about the symbolism of water being death. And, and when we come to this passage in Revelation, we see that the sea is no more. Because John wants his readers to know that there is no more death. There is no calamity. There is no more chaos. There are no more hostile forces working against the work of God. I wonder how many of you come today feeling like the sea is rising in your life. Feeling like the sea of death and chaos and calamity is around you. A health diagnosis, sickness, maybe uh, trouble at home or in your life. The sea feels like it's rising, but John wants you to know that in this future restoration, there is no more sea. Let's look at another detail of this future restoration. We see it in verse two. John says, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. What is this new heaven? What is this future restoration, this new earth? It's a city, a city. I gotta be honest, I wish it wasn't a city. I wish it was a little cabin on a lake with a nice mountain range, a few fishing poles. A city, I don't really like cities. Even a suburb would be nice. A few years back, or now a decade ago, Susie and I were working for a nonprofit organization in New York City called the Bowery Mission. Uh, my role in the organization took us into New York much more often than it took Susie. 
But one night we had both been at a meeting at headquarters and we had gone to Little Italy afterwards. We were eating some yummy desserts and drinking some great tasting coffee. And Susie looked up at all the buildings around in New York and she said, oh, I just love the city. And I looked at my wife and I said, this place gives me a headache. The city's filled with noise and chaos and hustle and bustle and people stepping on people to get ahead and there's all this anger and seems like chaos all around. I don't like cities. But John says, this new heaven and this new earth is a a city. And I believe that's to show us that it's not a city where there's violence or prejudice or discord or fighting, but it's a a city of perfect relationships. It's a city where people look out for each other. It's a city of harmony and care and selflessness where people look to others as better than themselves. It's a beautiful city. It's a city where all relationships are right. Maybe you come this morning with broken relationships in your life. Relationship with a spouse, a child, a parent, a friend, a co-worker. John wants you to know that the future restoration is a place of whole relationships, of good relationships, of life-giving relationships. There's no sea in this beautiful city And this picture gave the early Christians the endurance to handle the persecution that came. The future restoration transforms our present reality by giving us endurance, by giving us the endurance to face all the things that we have to face in our life, all the hardships and the difficulties. It works for the early church and it will work for us. As I considered the endurance that the future restoration gives us, I was thinking about African-American spirituals, the hymns that enslaved people here in America wrote, hymns about heaven and judgment day, thrones and robes, Hymns about Exodus and Moses and the deliverance of freedom. Some have critiqued these African-American spirituals, saying that they're too otherworldly, that there's too much talk of heaven. In 1947, an African-American theologian and pastor uh, who was born in 1899 to a family that had been enslaved in Florida. He was invited to Harvard University to give a talk on the African-American spiritual. His talk was entitled, The The Negro Spiritual Speaks of Life and Death. And he wrote this. He wrote, or he said, and this is the transcript, but the facts are clear that this faith, this sung faith, served to deepen the capacity of the slaves for endurance 
and their ability to absorb their suffering. It taught a people how to ride high in life, how to look squarely in the face of those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope and to use those facts as raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that their environment, with all its cruelty, could not crush. A hope that their environment, with all its cruelty, could not crush. Their songs of this future restoration transformed their present reality and enabled them to adore, endure the incredible hardships, violence, and cruelty that they faced. Yes, our future restoration transforms our present reality by giving us endurance. But I also think it invites us in to engagement. Engagement in the work of restoration that is going on around us. There's two more details that I'd like to look at in the passage that we read today. Again, in verse two, we read this. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Where does the new earth and the new heaven? Heaven comes down to the new earth. I think that's an important detail because sometimes we walk around and think, I just want to get off this planet. I just want to escape and get to heaven. But the future restoration is a heaven and earth that collide that overlap, that intersect, that interlock, a famous theologian N.T. Wright always says, that the new heaven and the new earth are together. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is already here. In the Lord's Prayer that we heard musically and maybe you were singing the words along as I was, Jesus teaches us to pray Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That the work of restoration has begun. That Jesus is restoring things now. And he's inviting us to engage in that work with him. We see it clearly in another spot here in these verses. Look at verse 4 if you have your Bible open. Notice the tense of the verb. John writes, he, meaning God, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Future tense, right? That this future restoration, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. But then verse five, the tense changes. John writes that Jesus sitting on the throne says, behold, I am making all things new. That Jesus will wipe every tear from our eyes, yet he says, I am making all things new. Theologians dub this the already but not yet kingdom of God. It's already here, but it's really going to happen fully in the future. And what that means is that the work of restoration has begun and Jesus is inviting us to join him in that work. 
Jesus is inviting us to help make all things new. We already talked about how this vision of future restoration stabilized that early church in the face of great persecution. But a few decades later, something else would happen in the Roman Empire. Great plagues would come. Cities were, were, were overrun by plagues that were killing the population. Sometimes as many as 30% of the people in these cities were dying. Because there were so many people together, the death rates in those cities were greater. And so people started leaving the city and fleeing to the hillside and the countryside. Except for the Christians. History books tell us that the Christians stayed behind. They came and served the sick. They gave them food to eat. They nursed them as they either got better or died. And when they died, the Christians made sure that they all had a proper burial. That this vision of future restoration changed the way the church engaged with the needs in their community. They didn't run from the needs, but they walked towards the needs. They risked their own life. They used their own resources. And they engaged in the work of restoration in front of them. How do you engage in the work of restoration? I know Dave, who just got uh, commissioned as a Stephen minister, he's in retirement. He could be playing golf and tennis all day long, but he said, no, I'm going to become a Stephen minister. I think of all the teachers in our community. I'm married to one, so maybe I'm biased, but you guys are in the heart of restoration work in our community. You're not just teaching kids how to add one plus one or anything like that. You're, you're working on holistic restoration of kids' lives. You're trying to make sure they're fed today and tomorrow. You're trying to work on family issues. You're in it. How is your job? How can you use your work or your time to engage in the work of restoration around you? How can you help in the process of making all things new? It may cost you. It may cost you time, it may cost you energy, it may cost you resources. But the work of restoration, this future restoration, invites us to engage alongside Jesus and his work. Our future restoration transforms our present reality. But I have a question. How do I receive this restoration? How do I receive the restoration that Jesus is offering to you and to me? You see, if we read too quickly through this passage, we could get the wrong idea, right? If we, if we read verses seven and eight, it says that the one who conquers will have this heritage. It says that the cowardly the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, they don't get restoration. They get the lake of fire and sulfur. So is John saying that if we, if we work hard enough, we get this restoration? Is John saying that if, we, if we're good enough and we try hard enough and we're moral enough and, and we, we, we show ourselves to be good enough that Jesus will give us this restoration? That's not what scripture says at all. 
No, because too quickly we, we skip over verse six. And verse six says this, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the thirsty I will give of the water of life without payment. Now Jesus says, if you want to be restored, then show up thirsty. To show up to Jesus and say, Jesus, I can't restore myself. I can't restore my family. I can't restore right relationship with you or anybody around me. Jesus, I need you. Jesus says, if you're thirsty, ask, and I will give you living water. And this living water, Jesus says, it's without payment. It's free. It's free if we would approach Jesus and say, Jesus, I thirst for you. But it it wasn't free. It may be free for us, but it did cost something, right? Because in John chapter 19, we read that as Jesus hung on the cross, what did he yell out? He yelled out, I thirst. Jesus yelled out, I thirst. That Jesus took all of our thirst and brought it to the cross. He took our sin and our shame and our guilt and taking it to the cross, he left it in the grave and rising again, he made it so that we could come, we could come to him thirsty and that he would freely give living water for those who thirst. Our future restoration transforms our present reality. It gives us endurance when the sea is rising around us. It invites us in to to work alongside Jesus. It invites us in to engage in that work of restoration. And Jesus says, all those who are thirsty can have it. Thank you for joining us today. Here at the Williamsburg Community Chapel, we are all about making disciples of Jesus Christ. So wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we are excited to help you connect to Christ and His community. Have a blessed day.